this is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. Welcome to episode 8 of Cold War Conversations. Before we start, a few requests I'd like to ask you to place reviews wherever you listen to the show from. Positive iTunes reviews really help me to raise the profile of the podcast. Also, if you haven't already, there's a vibrant discussion group growing on Facebook. Just search for Cold War Conversations. So, enough publicity. Let's get on to the subject of today's podcast. Russell Phillips has written several books on Warsaw Pact military equipment, and our conversation is an interesting exchange covering the evolution in design, tactics, and the deployment of Warsaw Pact armed forces should the Cold War have turned hot. It covers slightly off-topic conversation about saunas and swimming pools in Soviet submarines, and Frankie goes to Hollywood too. We welcome Russell Phillips. Hello, Russell. Hello, Ian. How are you this evening? I'm good, thanks. Can you, uh, first of all, just give us a little bit of background about you? Um, certainly. I, I was born in 1970, so I grew up during the Cold War. Didn't really take, pay that much attention for most of it at the time, which I kind of, looking back on it now, it's, it kind of seems like a missed opportunity. But I guess when I was like 12 and 13, I had no idea that I'd be interested in this <laughs> 30 years down the line. This all started because I'm, I'm a war gamer. I was a World War II gamer. You know, that, was, that was the bit of military history that really caught my attention. Mm-hmm. In the late 1980s, the war games club I was in started playing at the time we called them ultra modern war games. Cause it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it was present day virtually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I had a bit of a hiatus from war gaming and when I came back to it, it suddenly occurred to me that it's, it's not ultra modern anymore. It's like 30 years ago. Yeah. It's almost ancient. Well, my kids call it ancient history. <laughs> um, so that's, that's when I started getting interested in um, Warsaw Pact. AFEs particularly mm-hmm. um, and there was because I was always on the the Soviet Warsaw Pact sort of side so that's yeah. where most of my interest was I had some interest and some knowledge of the, the western um, equipment and things but my main focus was always on the on the east yeah surely that was an unfair advantage <laughs> <laughs> so can we can we start by you just explaining what the Warsaw Pact was? Because some of our listeners might not know what, what the Warsaw Pact was and which countries were members. Okay, well, it was, um, it's just that I've got the, um, a copy of the treaty on my computer. Oh, well, uh, perfect. I'm expecting it <laughs> verbatim then. That'll be a great podcast. Technically, <laughs> technically, it's the Treaty of Friendship, Cooperation and Mutual Assistance between the Soviet Union and certain East European communist governments, signed at Warsaw, May the 14th, 1955. That's a catchy title for you. Oh, yeah. You can see why people called it the, um, the Warsaw Pact. Can't yeah, you? I can see why people went for shorthand with that one. <laughs> but it's, um, according to the introduction, um, it, was, it came about um, as a result of NATO being formed a few years prior, mm-hmm. um, West Germany starting to be remilitarized. And according to the treaty, it's, it's all about the Eastern Bloc um, being the peace-loving people that they are, wanting to make sure that um, they maintained peace and that they had a, a defensive structure in case the West ever invaded. Right. Um, now, the initial parties were Albania, Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, the DDR, Hungary, Poland, Romania, and the Soviet Union. Right. Okay. The usual suspects then. Yeah. I'm and trying is, to think. There's nobody missing out of that, is there, really? That, that would be obvious. So it's European-based yes. um, alliance. Yes, very much so. Um, Yugoslavia is not in there, but they always seem to be presented in the, the media and things as being on the part of the Eastern 
um, sort of block and part of the Soviet sphere of influence. Hmm. But it always seemed to be quite a, a distant sort of relationship. Yeah, well, I think they were part of the, the non-aligned movement, weren't they? So yeah, I think so. They they sort of grouped with India and other countries like that that didn't have any direct military alliances. I do sometimes wonder how they managed it being like surrounded by Warsaw Pact nations. I think I think their western border was with Italy and Austria or something like that. But yeah, yeah they had a long border with the Warsaw Pact. I do sometimes wonder how they managed to to keep that that yeah, sort of stance. But I, but I guess any country would have been wary of invading Yugoslavia after their sort of guerrilla expertise in world war Two. that's true i mean it, i don't suppose it would have been a, a straightforward um a straightforward operation by any means no so did all those countries remain part of the warsaw pact through to its um dissolution no um and the, i will just um sort of say that there was a terms in there for you know if anybody else wanted to join there were there were clauses in the the treaty about how you know how that would go about yeah um but albania albania left they in 1962 after the the sino-soviet split they sided with china and didn't they were still in the warsaw pact technically but they didn't really um get involved they weren't involved in exercise and things like that and then in 1968 they formally withdrew um after the as a protest against the invasion of Czechoslovakia. Oh, okay, okay. And what and what about um, Romania? Because I'm I'm sure I read somewhere that they weren't as active a participant as perhaps some of the others. Yeah, they were. Theoretically, they were a full member. I don't think they were very trusted, and they there was always a bit of distance. I think between between them and the rest of the. I saw an article just recently. Actually, I think. It was probably linked from the um, the Facebook group, um, but it was entitled something like a Cold War within a Cold War, and it was about Romania and their relationship with the rest of the Warsaw Pact. It was really quite interesting reading. Yeah, I posted that on Twitter the other day. I'm glad right. you're re- I'm glad you're reading the Twitter feed there <laughs> at at Cold War Pod if you're not already following everyone. But yeah, it's it's also interesting to note that Romania was the only Warsaw Pact nation that made their own um, their own design of main battle tanks. Okay, I didn't know that. So, like Czechoslovakia and Poland um, made T fifty fives and T seventy twos and had their own um, their own models with you know slight differences from the, the Soviet standard. Mm-hmm. Um, but Romania had a, a couple of main battle tanks that were they were largely based on. Um, I think it was the. It might even have been the Type Fifty Nine, a, a Chinese um, one. I'm not. I can't quite remember now whether it was T Fifty Five or Type Fifty Nine. But it was. Whereas the Czech T Fifty Five and the Polish one had was like T Fifty Five, and then a series of numbers or letters after to designate the particular differences. Yeah, the Romanian one had its had their own their own designation and they were they were designed in Romania. And that that was the only one so generally most of the Warsaw Pact was using Soviet designed and and were they made under license in the host country or were they all made in the Soviet Union? Yeah the the tanks were the main battle tanks were were Soviet designs. Um the Czechs and the Poles made them um in Czechoslovakia and, and Poland. Mm-hmm. Um, there were other AFVs. Um, various countries made their own their own things. Um, the Czechs and the Poles had a, a rather a successful um, couple of armoured personnel carriers um, that were completely homegrown. And there were things like the there were things like self-propelled guns um, and stuff like that that also pack countries would make their own. Most of it was Soviet though. Right. Okay. I think it's probably worth us just covering what the the because we talk about AFV and we mean armored fighting vehicle, um, and there were various different types. Could you just explain what those different types are and what their their function was? Yeah, of course. I this is something where you get if you're not careful, you're just drowned in in acronyms. Yeah. <laughs> so APC is armored personnel carrier. Basically, exactly what it says. It's an armored box that carries people. Some were tracked, 
some were wheeled. If they're wheeled, they would have all-wheel drive to give them a good, and quite often they would have like eight driven wheels um, to give them a good cross-country mobility. Mm -hmm. But their their job was just to get their troops to the front line. And they might be armed with a machine gun or something like that, but they they wouldn't have much armament. Um, There wouldn't be a lot of armour. And the troops would usually fight um, dismounted, so they'd they'd ride the the vehicle to the front, and then they'd get out to actually fight, and the vehicle would just hang back. Okay, okay. And and there was another type which was the infantry fighting vehicles. Yes. So what what was the difference between that and the armoured personnel carrier? Well, the infantry fighting vehicle or, or IFE was it tended to be better armoured. So the, the armour was thicker mm-hmm. and it would be better armed. And that was much more designed to fight with the tanks. Um, so the, the BMP was the, the main one in the, in the Warsaw Pact. Mm-hmm. The initial model had a 73mm gun, but it was, again, it was designed to carry a squad of, of infantrymen, so about eight men. But Rather than just dropping them off and then letting them go, it would stay with them and provide them with support. The defining characteristics of an IFV as opposed to a a personnel carrier Mm. are that it will be quite well armed. Most designs have an autocannon, 20, 30 millimetre, that sort of size. And most of them have an anti-tank missile as well. Okay, and the the one that probably most people will be familiar with is the is the main battle tank. Yes, which is basically a well, I was going to say regular tank, but it's a quite a heavyweight tank, isn't it? In general, yes. Although the Soviet designs tended to be uh, lighter and smaller than the NATO designs in the post-war years, most countries came around to the idea of having a sort of a universal tank, mm-hmm. which became known as the main battle tank. Right. Um, and some countries still had light tanks for reconnaissance and things like that, but the fighting the fighting tank um, would be the main battle tank, which, okay. as you say, was, it was pretty hefty. It would have a big gun. It would have thick armour. Mm-hmm. It would be capable of, of taking on anything on the battlefield okay and the the other the other types were are like an armored car which is pretty similar to a world war ii design is it um usually yeah the main ones in the warsaw pact were the brdm1 and brdm2 which were um the two had a, a very small little turret um but the main the thing with an armoured car is that it's not really there to fight anything. It's there for, for a constant and things. So it was yeah. mostly, you know, it was like find out where the enemy is rather than um, actually shoot at them, really. Right. Okay. And was there any other categories of AFE ap- apart from those four? Yes. <laughs> Self-propelled guns were quite a, a big one. Um, in the West, most of the artillery were self-propelled. So basically it's an artillery piece on some sort of, vehicle to let it so that it can move around quickly yeah um the the soviets and the warsaw pact used quite a bit of of towed artillery as well as self-propelled guns and the the soviets really liked the multiple rocket launchers um which were known as katyushas during world war ii and still kept that that nickname Well, the Star- uh, Stalin's organ, weren't they known as yes. as well? <laughs> yeah, and guards' mortars, I think, was another term. Right. In World War II. I guess the best generic term would be tank destroyers, was the other main sort of fighting um, right. armoured fighting gear. Okay, so there were self-propelled guns with artillery designed for bombardment, and then yes. there were self-propelled guns that were purely designed as tank killers. <laughs> See, after World War Two, because you get the anti-tank missiles starting to come become prominent. Yeah, quite a lot of the the tank killers had missile armament rather than gun armament. Right, and the main battle tank. I always think of it as a an evolution of the medium tank of World War Two, mm-hmm. but they are uh, modern ones are really quite heavy, and even by like the nineteen fifties, 
it seemed to come from the medium tank lines. They were getting really quite heavy, and even a, a 1955, uh, something like a T-55 would be, Looking at, you know, you compare that to World War II tanks, and it's more like a something like a Tiger or a King Tiger, right. which would have been heavy during World War II. Surely that, that, that sort of level of design would cause problems trying to cross bridges or, or, or not? And the, the Warsaw Pact actually had, a, had quite a, a thing about um, being able to cross rivers without bridges. The Soviet Army did a, a study of West Germany, and basically worked out that if they were to invade West Germany, and I think they were hoping to advance in like 100 kilometres a day, and they would cross several rivers every day if they were maintaining that sort of level of advance. Mm -hmm. And, of course, NATO are going to blow up as many bridges as they can. So there was a lot of emphasis with Warsaw Pact vehicles in ways of crossing rivers. Mm -hmm. So... The lighter vehicles, the armoured personnel carriers, infantry fighting vehicles, things like that, were frequently amphibious and could just and could swim. And uh, the main battle tanks, which were just way too big for that sort of thing, from I don't think the initial design of T fifty five had this, but certainly the later ones all carried snorkels, which are just basically big long. Um, tubes that would fit on top of the turret and they would seal um, seal everything off, seal the barrels, you know. Yeah. And then it could just literally drive across the bottom of the river. Wow, I wouldn't fancy doing that. I don't know about <laughs> you, but I'd be worrying that my seals weren't uh, quite right. Gosh, that must well, have been a bit nerve-wracking. According to a, um, a British Army Intelligence um, kind of like a magazine, actually, um, that I've got. There was a, they had dedicated places for training the crews to do this. But apparently these spaces had, there were, the people, the men were really well looked after while they were there. And they had to, they wouldn't let them join their unit and carry on with their normal training until they were competent at doing this. Right. And it was, they could, Weighed up to something like five meters of depth of water, although the, there were other considerations like the strength of the current had to be below a certain amount because otherwise the you know the snorkel would just get yeah. snapped off. And if it was um, if it was during the winter and there were bits of ice flowing down, then that could that could cause problems. <laughs> and also, I would have thought the bed of the river. I mean, as to how much traction you yeah. can get there and i mean it just doesn't bear thinking about getting bogged down at the bottom of a river in a very heavy tank well see winter though again they had they were trained on how to escape you know if that did happen right there were um as we call the basic procedure was that you allow the water to get into the tank slowly like you know just open up something fairly small and then um get out but they'd yeah, they were they were trained for that sort of thing. Yeah. So to equalise the pressure and then and then get out. A bit like submarine training. Yeah. Ooh. How about the 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 guns? I mean, they were carrying quite heavy guns. What was it? One hundred and fifteen millimeter. The modern the main, the, the main battle tanks. The T sixty two had one hundred and fifteen millimeter. The T sixty four, which came along a little later, initially did. But then they upgone that to 125, and right. that was the standard for the Warsaw Pact by the end of the, the Cold War. Um, but they were, traditionally, of course, they were all rifled. That imparted the spin, and that's what meant that your, yeah. your shell was stable in flight. Yeah, so there were grooves right the way down the barrel that basically yeah. spun the shell around as it passed through. Exactly. Okay. With the... Now, the T-62 was the first tank with this, but the, the Soviets had a, an anti-tank gun before the T-62. But, but these had um, smoothbore barrels, so they were just completely smooth on the inside, no rifling at all. The shell was had a, a fin at the back that stabilised it, mm-hmm. and it looked, and they, they tend to get referred to as, as a dart, and they're, they're very, very long, and very, very thin, 
and at the back there's just a and it's referred to as a fin but it's when i think of a fin i think of like you know the, the sort of things that you get on darts and arrows and yeah, things yeah. like that but these are more sort of at the back it's it sort of expands like so it sort of fans out the the, yes. the the shell or the 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 shape of the shell fans out so it's almost yes. like a funnel on the end of the shell or a yeah. funnel shape yes okay and do, i presume that prolonged the life of the barrel as well not having rifling or or not it was it was cheaper to make which was certainly for the the warsaw punk nations with the the huge armies was always a concern and it was um the barrel would last longer because it was you know it had less um stress on it and things but the ammunition was more expensive right oh okay but it was also more effective because the because it relies on kinetic energy, the if it's long and thin, you've got all the 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 energy is coming up in a very small um, point at the end, whereas a, a traditional shell would be quite relatively fat. Yeah, and so you know, for the same amount of weight, you can have um, more energy, and therefore it will penetrate more armor. So. I mean, none of these tanks were, obviously, the the Cold War didn't get hot in West Germany, but Mm. some of these tanks were presumably used in the Arab-Israeli wars. Presumably, NATO would get access to some of these and would learn from these, or, or and presumably the Warsaw Pact would be learning from what worked and what didn't work. The Israelis gave the Americans access to some stuff that they captured and certainly the Arabs um, gave the Soviets access to some things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, they, I mentioned earlier that the T-64 started off with a 115 millimetre gun. Yeah. Um, and this, I, it got a gun to 125 millimetres. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Very early on in its life, it wasn't, strictly speaking, it wasn't due to a war, um, but an Iranian defector defected with his US-made M60 main battle tank. Right. Which gave the, the first time the Soviets had a look at it. Yeah. Um, and that's why they they increased the size of the gun because they realised the, the 115 millimeter just wasn't going to be good enough. And I'm fairly sure that the M60 was similarly um, had some changes made um, after the, the Americans got hold of some captured soviet equipment from the israelis right okay but one thing that did i think it was the 1967 war where anti-tank missiles really came into their own because it was the first time they'd really been used mm-hmm. and there were reports of um of israelis carrying of israelis so seeing egyptians carrying what looked like suitcases and they were man portable anti-tank missiles and the the thing that you carried them in looked like a kind of like a suitcase yeah and it because it was the first time they were really used in in any sort of numbers they were you know they were completely new people didn't know how to counter them and the israelis suffered initially quite heavily from them but then i've seen some um newspaper headlines and things saying that like you know this was the the death knell of the of the tank and you know, they're, they're obsolete now, which obviously hasn't turned out to be true. But the, by the 1973 war, the countermeasures had been, had been worked out and things. And, you know, the, the Israelis had actually spent some time thinking about this and, 
as with things like this, you know, the one side makes an advance in something and then the other side finds a way around it. It's that constant sort of, you know, one thing improves and the other thing improves to beat it again. So the the downside of, of anti-tank missiles is that they're quite slow and especially the, the early ones because you had to, the operator had to literally steer it onto its target with a little joystick. Right. Um, so, you know, it couldn't go too fast because otherwise, you know, the operator wouldn't be able to, to guide it. Yeah. Um, and it would take something like about 30 seconds to travel at, at maximum range, which gives the, if the crew of the tank that's being fired at are, are alert and sufficiently on the ball, then they can react to it and they can, they might um, fire smoke discharges to hide the tank. Mm-hmm. They could fire back at the, the person who's, who's aiming it, if they can work out where it's come from and not, necessarily hit them you know if you can just make them flinch yeah put them off yeah yeah all of a sudden they you know they tilt the the joystick the wrong way and the missile goes flying off in the wrong direction yeah that's all you need you know it's okay and these were wire guided these missiles weren't they yeah yeah that particular one was was called the saga or or rather nato called it the saga i always think of it as that um the russian name is Malyuka, I think, although I've no idea if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Sounded impressive to me, Russell, so. <laughs> Sounded good to me. And, okay, so so how did the, the Warsaw Pact AFVs compare to the, to the NATO equivalents? Um, they were cheaper. They were, you know, I guess partly because they, they needed they, to make a lot of them. Um, they tended to be a lot simpler and cheaper. They were, and they didn't care quite so much as NATO did about um, creature comforts. So they were, you know, they tend to be cramped um, and not necessarily easy to use. Although I did read fairly recently that the the BMP was the first of that sort of size vehicle to have a, a T-bar for steering instead of, a pair of sticks, whereas the, the American M113 and the British FV-42 had a, a pair, I can't remember what they call them now, but a pair of sticks that you sort of pull and push on. Right. The, the BMP had a, a bar, which is closer to a, a car steering wheel, and so it was easier to use. The main battle tanks tended to be smaller, and there's, depending on who you talk to, that can make a difference in how easy they are to hit. But I think that really depends on, on exactly how good you're your opponent is yeah yeah and i presume spares wise because they're all made of a similar design spares and parts would have been uh you know the maintenance would have been easier because there's yes. some commonality there yeah I and mean, even within um series like the the btr series there was the the btr 6 to the btr 17 the btr 80 there were there were three distinct vehicles but there was a a fair degree of of commonality between the three of them did the warsaw pact have different tactics to nato in how you know they they intended to uh, attack or their their general deployment um yeah i mean they <clears throat> they were more focused on the attack and and on numbers and mass the 1980s when i was wargaming this i remember looking at it and sort of thinking because some of the people i knew at the time would be were very were absolutely convinced that because NATO had better equipment on the whole, and at least some of their armies were volunteers rather than conscripts, uh, you know, they, if it did come to a shooting war, then NATO would, would win hands down. Mm. And I was never entirely convinced, because it always seemed to me that if you look at the, the later years of World War II, the Germans had some really good stuff. You know, like the, the Panther was a, a very good tank, although it had some mechanical issues. Mm. Whereas the the Allies had things like the Sherman, and it just it seemed to me like the the Germans then had the had the quality, but not the numbers, and they lost. You know, yeah. and I couldn't help thinking, you know, is that going to repeat itself? And I nowadays I'm I'm really not sure. I think it would. I wouldn't honestly like to to call it. Mm. 
Okay. I'm just really glad it never happened. Really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, aren't we all, <laughs> to be honest? <laughs> I mean, even if it never came to a, you know, if they um, both managed to, both sides managed to keep off the nukes, it would still have been a horrible... Oh, it would, yeah. It, it costly. Would devastated the, the heart of Europe and... Yeah, no, it doesn't. It doesn't bear thinking about. Um, what about the 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 officers commanding the these tanks? I mean, how how were they trained? And um, well, that's an interesting point. Actually, the the Soviet system under the Warsaw Pact army tended to the model of the Soviet system relied on officers to a, a greater extent than NATO did, or rather, they didn't rely on. NCOs as much as NATO did is probably the fair way to say it. Whereas NATO would, um, I mean, it's something of a stereotype, but you know, you get the, the sergeant who's been in in the army for like years and years, and you know knows everything backwards, and then the young fresh faced lieutenant comes along and basically learns from the sergeant. Yeah. In the Soviet system, they didn't. The NCOs weren't like that. They were sergeants were conscripts along with with all the privates. Um, they were just the one, yeah. They they'd pick out the more promising ones and make them sergeants. But they'd serve the two years and then go home. In most cases, a few of them stayed on, mm. but not many. So it was the officers had a lot more to do, and they were given a lot or expected to use initiative a lot less. It was everything was kind of higher up the chain. You know, the when you're your low-level officers are, are given their orders that it's much more, this is what you are going to do and this is how you are going to do it. Hmm. Um, whereas NATO would be more sort of, you need to do this. And the officer would then go off and, and work out how to do it. You know, the, the Warsaw Pact is, as you, as you read, their, uh, you know, their initial treaty is a, a treaty of friendship and fraternal brotherhood of the socialist um, nations um was there much rivalry between the the different armies particularly you know i would imagine on exercise i know that certainly with nato you know there'd be a lot of national rivalry to to be the best Mm. yeah i in particular i i can't remember where where i read it now but i i remember reading a a translated report of a of an exercise so you know this was a a report that a, a soviet officer had written and I think I found it on the CIA's reading room. Um, but it it noted that it was talking about the East German and the, the Polish officers, and they really, really did not get on. As I recall, it was the, the Poles didn't like the East Germans because they thought the East Germans looked down on them, and the East Germans didn't like the Poles because they did look down on them. They basically right. thought that they were rubbish. And, and I... I think this was a the exercise had taken place in like the sixties or so, mm. and I couldn't help wondering how much of that was was a, a sort of throwback to the the World War Two sort of attitude because yeah the the Nazis in Germany really indoctrinated everybody to consider everybody to the east as as being lesser you know yeah. not really human and so on I just I wondered how much of that was still um, in the German sort of subconscious yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've I've always been amazed that the East German army retained the goose step as their mm. sort of marching style with all the Prussian and Nazi connotations yeah. um, around it. I, it. It always surprises me, and I've not never sort of been able to determine what you know what why they did that but um i think you know obviously you know if you're talking about a report in the 1960s that is you know potentially only 15 20 years since the end of world war ii and obviously there were german territories that were given to poland and all of that you know there's a lot of um you know uh political and nationalistic complications in there as well you can't stop them stop people from from having those feelings and and feeling like that about each other yeah yeah no absolutely i mean you know you can look at yugoslavia with the death of tito and the the whole you know implosion of that country and the, the nationalism rising there but also in the former you know all the former soviet republics i mean it's difficult to to sort of describe this in a way that doesn't sound 
uh, <laughs> strange, but you know, it did seem like a simpler world when the Cold War was on because it was basically, you know, the Warsaw Pact versus NATO, yeah. and it was quite straightforward. Whereas, you know, the 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 world now has become far far more complicated. Yeah, this may be something of a tangent, but. Um, we like we like tangents <laughs> here, Russell. So go for it. I see something that people don't necessarily think about is that the Soviet Union, of course, wasn't just yeah. You know, we we have a tendency to refer to it as Russia sometimes, but it mm. wasn't just Russia. You know, there was all these other states making up the the Soviet Union. So even within the Soviet Army, you had a massive languages, and. Um, that caused real problems for communication within within units because they the Soviets didn't like make a a Kyrgyz unit and a Georgian unit they just mashed them all together oh. and a lot of the the privates you know come from Kyrgyzstan or or wherever wouldn't speak Russian and Russian was the the language of the army and they'd learn like you know a few words of Russian so that they could um do the at least the basics that the officers told them to do, or at least know what they were being told to do. But there was a communication was was always a problem. Mm. Two years later, he's not there anymore. That's really I'd not thought of that because you just imagine a homogenous Russian-speaking army, but yeah, you don't necessarily recognise that the Soviet or the Red Army was made up of all these different nationalities. Well, and- that's the thing. Some yeah, of them it, won't be fluent in Russian. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, and the Warsaw Pact had that, and NATO had that to some extent, you know, because, like, each of them are alliances of, of various countries that have their own languages. Yeah. But at least within the East German army, everybody speaks German. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and with NATO, you had British units. You know, you didn't have a unit made of Dutch, British, and french exactly and that's exactly the kind of thing that you had in the soviet army yeah oh that's interesting i never thought of it that way how protected were the the warsaw pact vehicles for nuclear and chemical weapons were they they i presume they were all that was all part of their standard equipment and um it did tend to be yeah i mean part of the going back to the the bmp that i was talking about earlier um the, the infantry fighting vehicle part of the one of the sort of concepts of how you would fight with that, it was it was designed right from the outset to be able to operate in a, a chemical environment and so on. So you know, it was all sealed off. And, yeah. Um, and I don't know if you've ever noticed on um, on main tank guns, you tend to have a bulge partway down the, um, yes, the barrel. Yes, on the barrel, yeah. You've got to tell the, me what that does now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the fume extractor and it, it kind of serves two purposes, really, because it, it stops the fumes from firing the gun from getting back into the tank, so it keeps them outside, so yeah. your crew are better off. But it also means that chemicals and things from outside are less likely to enter through the barrel. Right. So it, um, certainly from... Now, I think, the, I think the T-54 and the very early models of T-55 weren't fully protected against radiation and chemicals um but certainly later models were and from that point on pretty much virtually everything was early armored personnel carriers like the the original btr 60 and the btr 50 were were open topped so the troops would only be protected if they were actually wearing their nbc suits yeah um but that's one of the reasons why you know things like that started becoming covered so they could have greater protection. Protect yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, th- thanks for that. Um, I did have some uh, additional questions which aren't necessarily directly related to um, uh, Warsaw Pact AFVs, but um, do, have you collected anything down down the years of your your interest in the Cold War? I'm not really a collector in the sense of some of the the people you've interviewed have heard, but I have. I used to. I used to own a, an Oshanka. You know the the Russian fair hat. Oh, yeah, 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 with the red star in the middle of it, yeah. Well, mine was East German, so it had the... Oh, okay. East German. The hammer was, and compasses. Yes, that's the one. But it was... I like hats anyway, um, and that one was incredibly warm. 
it was I never actually worked with the air flaps down because I never needed to. <laughs> it's so <laughs> temperate in the UK, yeah. <laughs> Even like I was I only ever wore it in the winter because any other time it would be too warm. But even in the winter, it would it was an incredibly warm, um, warm thing. I used to, I loved that hat. Yeah. Um, but I lost it probably in a house move somewhere. I have still got a, an East German combat jacket. I bought one not long after the the war fell. Where I lived at the time in South Yorkshire, there was a, a market stall that um, suddenly had loads of of East German um, ex military stuff. Yeah, and it was all really, really cheap, um, and they, it was great. I got a, um, I got, I don't know if you've if you're familiar with the it's it's known as the raindrop camouflage pattern, and it's uh, the the camouflage part is sort of like lines, probably about an inch or two long, all over the the jacket. Yeah, it's a really odd looking kind of camouflage mask, but it was I think the poles used it as well, or a, right. a variation of it. I also have. Um, I think I mentioned this earlier, but there's a. It's called Army Technical Intelligence Review, and it's the best I can tell. It's it's in the format of like a magazine, mm-hmm. and it seems to be something that the British intelligence, uh, military intelligence, created. Probably, I think from the dates, I think there's a couple or three um, per year, and it would just be. It would just have all sorts of information about foreign military equipment and things. And I've got quite a few copies of those um, from the, the 60s and the 70s, um, which I bought uh, from Bobbington Tank Museum a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. They, I was there for the, the weekend. They have this event called Tank Fest, where they, a lot of their exhibits are still, are still running. They, you know, they can actually drive them around and things. Yeah. And Tank Fest, they get them out for the weekend and drive them around the, the arena. And for somebody like me, it's fantastic. Yeah. So it's um, like the the Glastonbury of armoured <laughs> fighting vehicles. Yes, exactly. Okay. Right. Okay. Got it. Got it. <laughs> but they um, they have a, a library and an archive service, and they had a, a stall. And I... Um, they had a crate with these things in. I was looking through them and I was thinking, these look really interesting. And I didn't have a lot of a spare money to, to spend on them. So I'm like, yeah, picking out the like, you know, the most interesting looking ones. Mm. And I said to the one behind the store, like, how much are these? And she said to me, ridiculous, like 10 pence each or something. Yeah. I was like, I'll have them all. <laughs> <laughs> I came over with this big bundle of them. And it's just, it's, <clears throat> it's not necessarily great from a, a point of view of, having a good reference of, of what these things are because, you know, quite often it's inaccurate. Yeah. But it can be fascinating to see what the what NATO's ideas were. Yeah, what their perspective was at the time and what they believed at the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you, you've mentioned Bovington, but, you know, are, are there any other places you'd recommend for people to see these these vehicles in, in the flesh? Well, if you're, if you're interested in this kind of thing, Bovington is... It's always worth a visit. They they don't have a, a lot of um, Warsaw Pact stuff, but they do have. They've got a couple of T seventy twos. One of which I think they swapped for a Chieftain <laughs> a few years ago. Now um, they basically gave a, a Chieftain tank to a Polish museum, and the Polish museum gave Bovington a, a T seventy two in exchange. Right. I I, I just love the idea that. <laughs> These museums like swapping tanks, you know? Yeah, yeah. The last time I went to Bovington, I was aged 11, believe it or not. So oh, right. I think it's probably changed quite a bit. It's it's one of these ones I've always wanted to go to, but living up north, it's uh, it, it's not that convenient. So where else in the in the UK would, would you say? I'm afraid it's down south again, but the Imperial War Museum, Duxford, it um, focuses mainly on, on aeroplanes, but they do have quite a collection of of ground vehicles as well. And right. they have some really quite interesting Warsaw Pact kit. Okay. Okay. Because I've been to uh, Cosford where, where they've got the Cold War Museum there. I mean, it's mainly aircraft, but they have got uh, a couple of vehicles. I think they've got a Leopard and a Bricksmith um, vehicle there as well. All right. Cool. That, um, it's on my list of places that I want to go, I must admit. And so, yeah, if you, if you have the money or if you happen to live over there, um, there's a, a museum at Kibinka, 
in in Russia. I think it's about an hour out of Antarctica. Yeah, I've seen photos of it, and it looks yeah. amazing. But a lot of the stuff's outdoors as well, which I was yes. quite surprised at. It's also worth knowing that there are there are small sort of private collections in the UK. So, like, it's worth trying to whenever you go on holiday, it's worth trying to find out if there are if there's a small private collection near where you're going. Yes, I, d- I did that a couple of years back. I went to the Norfolk Tank Museum, which has a great Cold War collection. They've got Chieftain, Centurion, uh, Scorpion, uh, Scimitar as well. And I was so lucky. I went there on a quiet day, and right. the guys showed me around and took me inside the Chieftain. So wow. I was able to sit inside the turret and get a real... Uh, nice. feel for it it was it was incredible so uh i'd i'd recommend that one it's a great little museum but as you say there, there's quite a few of them dotted around the country i once um managed to get inside a scud i was at the finningley air show near doncaster a private cloak i think it was budge the guy who owns a like a construction company yeah. and collects motor vehicles as a hobby and he'd brought some of his vehicles along and one of them was a scud uh missile launcher yeah with the missile on top. <laughs> and I was, I, I was like taking photographs of it and things. I must have been a teenager because I don't think I'd have the cheek anymore. But I asked if I could get inside it. Mm. And the guy just sort of like gave me a bit of a look and I went, you're all right. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, well, you see, well, if you don't ask, you don't get. So That's uh, what they there, there you go. There you go. So what, what's the most surprising thing you, you've discovered in your research into uh, Warsaw Pact AFVs? I think there are two things that I was, I've been particularly surprised at. And one of them, I found out looking into a British vehicle rather than a Warsaw Pact one, that's fuel as armour. Um, they the British had this um, concept which never made it into production. Um, it was called Contentious. And it was a quite a small vehicle, but it was designed to be have the same sort of armour and firepower as a, main, as a, a medium tank, because this was like 50s rather than, rather than later. Mm. And it looked somewhat like the, the Swedish S-tank. You know, the one with the... Yeah, without the turret. Yeah. Yeah. So it was going to be quite squat, and it was you know the the gun was fixed in place and all this kind of thing, but it had some really interesting ideas, and one of them was that the fuel tank was going to be right at the front of the vehicle, which seems completely illogical, yeah, keep going <laughs> but, but they did various tests to like you know make sure that it wasn't just going to be a death trap, and what they found was actually provided a certain amount of armour. It wasn't as good as, as deadly, you know, actual armour plates, but it was something like, it was going to be a big fuel tank, so it was going to be pretty thick. Yeah. But it's something like every three inches of fuel was equivalent to one inch of armour plate, as long as the fuel tank was full, yeah. of course. Yeah. And the other thing they found was that it was really difficult to actually set the fuel on fire. And if, you were, if it was diesel, it was virtually impossible. Yeah. And the other thing they said was, well, you know what, even if I, there was, um, they also looked at the potential for explosions and they decided they, depending on the kind of fuel used, there might, you know, there was potential for explosions if there was just the right amount of fuel and just the right amount of gap and things. Mm-hmm. But that only needed something like three quarters of an inch, I think it was, of mild steel to contain the explosion. So, of course, this was going to be surrounded by armour plate, yeah. so that wasn't an issue. There were some situations where, depending on the kind of fuel you used and so on, you might have an external fire and the fuel falling out would fuel the fire. But given that it's a tank and it can move, they mm. figured that it could just move out of the way. Yeah. That's interesting because I remember seeing a photo, or I might have read about it, about a, uh, a Soviet uh armor personnel carrier i think it was and the doors were fuel tanks that'll be the bmp yes um and i thought well that seems a bit balmy but now i can see there was some uh reason behind the madness well i've seen plenty of people saying that it, you know that's just a, a terrible idea but i'm i'm not convinced anymore i'm yeah. you know and like i said the most of the tests that the, the british did they found it was really hard to actually 
get this to, to light at all, especially with diesel, which is what yeah. the, the BMP used. It was virtually impossible. Yeah. But the other really quite surprising thing was that most Soviet-designed AFVs have a, a capability where, and I'm told that NATO vehicles can do this as well, but it never seems to be written down, but they can inject diesel into the exhaust manifold. But when they do that, it creates smoke. The thing is that at Tankfest a couple of years ago, they had a, a T-72 running around and he obviously switched that on because all of a sudden this massive smoke billowed out from behind it yeah but like half a circuit of the of the track and then he turned it back off again and it all yeah. dis- dissipated mm-hmm. well you'd want something like that if somebody's firing their wire guided uh, heat <laughs> missile at you with 30 seconds of uh, well the thing is you actually want your mate done. in front of you to do it so yeah <laughs> exactly yeah 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 <laughs> Or turn it on and then turn around quickly. I don't know. <laughs> so now it's time for the uh, the quick fire round. And uh, the first question is, if you were a filmmaker, what real life Cold War incident would you recreate on film? There's a couple of real life ones. I'm not... Actually, it doesn't have to be real life. I mean, it's like <laughs> what, what Cold War scenario... Would, I'm going to change. I, I'll change this. What Cold War scenario would you want to recreate? To be honest, the one that I would really like to see is a film of the Cold War turned hot. You know, a, you know yeah. the old, I, when I was a kid, I, you know, I grew up watching all these World War II films of you know, big battles and things. And I'd really like to see that in the Cold War. Yeah, in I'm, Europe, sur- I'm surprised nobody's, nobody's done that because there's a number of novels out there sort of uh, describing that, aren't there? There are. A lot of them tend to be really big sort of all-encompassing i suspect if you tried to turn something like red storm rise into a film you know you you would end up with like six three-hour films yeah it'd be like and lord of the rings still, wouldn't it yeah people would still complain you'd missed half of it out yeah <laughs> in real life i'd quite i'm not sure if it would work as well as a film it might work better as a as a book but i would something about um stanislav petrov you know the guy um it was in the 80s i think and he, he was the guy who was watching out for um, a nuclear launch from the mm-hmm. West. And the systems alerted him that the Americans had, had launched some missiles. And instead of picking up the phone to alert his superiors, he picked up the phone and reported a technical error. Partly to be honest, I'd like to see that turn into something like a film just to make people more aware of it. Because it's, if you're not interested in the, the period and things, then most people just never heard of him. And yeah. I think that's a real shame. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's a bit like there's a new book out called 1983. It's written by an author called, I think it's Taylor Downing. And it's all about the whole Abel Archer scare. Yes. I was listening to a podcast about that just yesterday, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a fascinating story. And again, it's sort of one of these ones that a lot of people sort of go with the Cuban Missile Crisis as being, you know, the most dangerous period. Mm. But uh, the more you hear about that Abel Archer scare, it it's, uh, was even closer um, yeah. with that. People don't know about it for the most part. You know, yeah. that's... And the, the thing I was... just occurred to me when I was listening to the podcast about it. The thing is, the first anyone would have known about it would have been the sirens going off. Yeah. yeah that's the... And that's the really scary bit, I think, you know... I mean, with the, I didn't live through it, but the, with the Cuban Missile Crisis, everybody knew that it was going on. Everybody yeah. knew there was a chance. But with April Archer, it would have just been, you know, all of a sudden the sounds are going off and you're like, what the... <laughs> yeah, what the hell's going on? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it, I mean, it, it is a, yeah, a terrifying thought. Um, is there, is there, a, is there any other um, films you want to make? Yes, there is... Um, um, I take it you've seen The Hunt for Red October. I have. Good film. It is. And uh, it's a good book as well. Although <laughs> he really <laughs> should have had the sauna. Did you know that those, the Typhoon missile boats had a sauna and the gym and the swimming pool? No, I honestly uh, <laughs> didn't know that. Wow. It sounds <laughs> like the, the, the Hilton under sea. <laughs> The, the tiny ones, you know, in, you know, they're, yeah. they're all really small, but they had. And the thing that every time I I see um, Humphrey October now, and I, you know, there's the officers um, after they've 
killed the the political officer, you know, they're yeah. talking about the plans thing. I keep thinking this should be in the sauna, you know? Yeah. Because listening devices, that much thing, you know, just like take that that would happen in the sauna, surely. Yeah. But of course, you know, nobody nobody in the West had any clue that they had stuff like that. I've seen a YouTube video um showing you these these things in in a, a typhoon. And it's just amazing. You've got to find me the link for that. I definitely want to post that on on <laughs> the will, show I'll, notes for this I'll one. I'll find it out. Like I said, the the swimming pool especially is absolutely tiny. Yeah. But the fact that they thought like you know, they put a swimming pool in a submarine is just yeah. It's mind blowing. Well, when it, particularly when you you know you talked about the lack of comfort in their armored fighting vehicles, you know, that's that's, true, yeah. you'd think that would be one of the last things they would put in a in a submarine. <laughs> but yeah, the reason I mentioned the, the Red October, I'd, I would like to see a film of the the incident that um, inspired Clancy to write that. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, it was a a guy called Valerie Sab- Sablin who was the political officer on a, a ship called the Storezivoy. And the, the West assumed that he was trying to defect. Right. But actually, he was start, trying to start a new revolution. I think he was stationed in Riga, and he was trying to get to Leningrad, I think. I might have got right. that wrong. But basically, he was, one, you know, he, was, he was unhappy with the corruption and things in the Soviet system. And wanted to spark a new revolution. I wasn't. I wasn't aware. I, I think I'm vaguely aware that obviously Red October was was based on something, but I hadn't mm. realised that it was um, somebody trying to overthrow the Soviet Union. I don't think Clancy realised that when he wrote it. To be honest, because I, right. I don't. I think this is a fairly new um, thing that's you know, fairly recently come out. Yeah. Because even at the time, you know, all the West went. Oh, obviously, he was trying to defect. You know. Obviously, you know? yeah, and and apparently the um, the communist leadership were like, yes, that's a better explanation. We'll go with that. Yes, yes, he was trying to do that. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, so so what would be your soundtrack for your uh, Cold War film? It didn't really do it to me at the time, but now um, I heard Two Tribes fairly recently by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Yeah, and they. The voiceover at the start and the siren really made the hairs on my. On the oh bike. yeah, Patrick. Um, can't remember his surname, but he was the official voice of the yeah. the adverts they would have put on to yeah, the, tell you how to a, take cover. Uh, a series of films, I think that yeah, yeah, that he voiced, and it was just yeah, especially because it was his voice, you know, overlaid on the the thing. Yeah. It just. Yeah, that yeah. really made me. Yeah. Have you seen the video of that? Not for a very... Uh, yeah, it's life. basically two lookalikes of Reagan and uh, Shernenko, I think it was at the time, right. um, fighting in a wrestling ring. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth finding out. I'll put a link to that on the show notes as well. It's going to be an eclectic <laughs> range of videos on the show notes for this one, without a doubt. <laughs> Okay, so uh, you've got three personalities from the Cold War you can invite down the pub. Who would they be? It would have to be Mrs. Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, and Mikhail Gorbachev. Because when I was, they were the the personalities when I was, let me think, I think I was about nine when Thatcher came to power. I think Reagan came to power about the same time. And I think Gorbachev's, I was probably about 15, something like that. When he, so when I was actually aware of, of sort of world politics, mm. they were the big three. So right. yeah, it have to be those three. Okay. And any particular questions you'd like to ask them? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I have to say... So bear in mind, we've, we've, we, you know, I've got a limited amount of disk space here. So. <laughs> I do have to say that I would, um, I'd be a bit sceptical about some of the answers. Um, you know, if there was some way I could force them to tell the truth, that would be absolutely fantastic. Okay, let's assume we, we've given them all a truth serum <laughs> in their pint of best. See, I always thought that there wasn't the Soviets never really intended to invade Western Europe. And I'd, I think they were always as scared of the West as we were of them. Yeah. And I'd really like to ask Gorbachev about that and find out if I'm actually right. Or, That's you know, if yeah. actually, you know, there were masses of plans and they just never did it for for some reason yeah um i'll have to get him on the show and ask him 
<laughs> You've got to aim high in this game, Russell. Oh, absolutely. See, if you don't ask, you don't get. There you go. There you go. Okay, so uh, Margaret Thatcher, what would you want to ask her? I'd like to know what she wrote in her letters of last resort for the okay. nuclear submarines. Yeah, so these are the, the, the letters that every serving British Prime Minister writes and gives to the captains of the nuclear submarines to open in the event of the order coming to um, fire. Yeah. Well, I think, actually, my understanding is that they're, they're only opened if all other forms of communication are lost. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think you're right, actually. Yeah, Britain's been flattened sort of scenario. Yeah. You know, and it's either a get the buggers, you know, yeah. or, well, you know, we've lost now, go to Australia, have a good life, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, yeah. I remember um, I heard a, an interview with Neil Kinnock some years ago, and he was saying that he, the only person he'd ever seen, he'd ever met, who he wasn't certain might push the button, because he was, he was absolutely convinced that nobody would ever actually order a nuclear strike. And the only person he thought might have mm. was Thatcher. Right. As the only person he'd met who he thought she might have done it. Everybody yeah. else like everybody else he'd met, he he thought they wouldn't. So I'd really like to know what was in her letters. Okay. Okay, that's good. I'm liking <coughs> these. I'm liking these. Okay, what about Ronald Reagan then? Right, well his is my question's for him more about the Falklands War. Okay, that's still effectively Cold War period, so you're yeah. okay there. <laughs> um, there was a bit of a when Argentina invaded the Falcons, there was a the Americans were in quite a, an awkward position to be fair to them because at the time Argentina and Britain were both their allies, and so you know they there was a certain amount of like both sides saying, "So you're going to help us, right?" You know, um, and they eventually helped us more and basically ignored the Argentinians. But there was, I know there was quite a bit of, within the American government, there were, there were people on both sides. So a couple of questions. The Argentinians had a plan to sink a British warship in Gibraltar. Okay. Now, now how were they going to do they, that? And my geography had suggests a, that would be quite difficult. <laughs> well, they got a team to Spain who then... Were they were um, launching it from Spain? So they right. it was a um, it wasn't a it wasn't even a special forces operation. It was basically a, a bunch of civilians <laughs> that they hired to do this. Okay. Um, but the the plan was that they would they were in Spain um, and they would I think they were planning on using using a little motorboat or something like they were going to. Because when you know, if you're in the right sort of Spain, the harbour in Gibraltar is like just over the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the thing is, that's within NATO's um, area of operations. Yeah. Had it happened, the UK could have invoked Article Five, which is which would have required the rest of NATO to um, fight Argentina. Right. Okay. So what, I'm, what I'd really like to know is what would the Americans have done if that had happened? I mean, yeah, it's quite a, yeah. <clears throat> quite a, a bit of lead up there. Yeah. but Yeah. Because the only time Article 5 was ever invoked was after the 9-11 attacks. Yeah. It's an, in, it's an interesting uh, quandary there because, I mean, what you're describing is an effectively an attack from an existing NATO country on a fellow NATO country by nationals that are not from the territory that the attack has been launched from. Yes. Um, and I, I would have thought, you know, I, I would imagine in that situation, the US are not going to side with Argentina. They're, they're also not going to probably use military action, but they are going to really put the screws on Argentina to capitulate, which in some ways they did um, during the Falklands anyway, didn't they? Because they were yeah. giving, I think they were giving the British a lot of satellite coverage. Yeah, and they, um, the Soviets were doing the same sort of thing for Argentina. Yeah, 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 <laughs> the, yeah. Okay, so are there any um, books that you would recommend 
uh, for anyone interested in learning more about Warsaw Pact armoured fighting vehicles, or the Warsaw Pact military in general, for that matter? One in particular is called Weapons and Tactics of the Soviet Army. Uh, it's, it's by David Isby, and I think it was published by James. Yeah. Um, but it's not one of the big James annuals. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think it's largely based on some of the US field manuals. I think it's, at least parts of it are, are largely based on those. Um, right. But it's, it's an excellent, it's a, it's a really good all round sort of thing. You know, if you don't want to have piles and piles of books about it, cause you're not yeah. that interested, it's a good, yeah. it's got specs on um, most of the, the equipment and it's also got sections on um tactics and operational doctrine and things like that so it's a really good all-round sort of thing film tv series what what would you recommend that you think is you know a good representation of life in the warsaw pact i think the the obvious choices to be honest and i'm um but deutschland 83 was was i thought was absolutely brilliant i'm Sure, it got mentioned in the yeah the Spybury episodes, and also Goodbye Lenin. I can't remember if that was if anybody's mentioned that yet, but I think that's a it's a great film. Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. Both both of those, I would, I would, um, I would go for. Um, so you can't think of anything that involves tracks and 115 <laughs> millimeter guns. Um, well, sadly, there's not that many films about that, which is why you want one made. <laughs> there is, um, there is a film called The Beast of War or The Beast. It seems to have two titles, depending on exactly where you see it. Yeah, um, it's the only film I've seen that is set during the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. Right. Okay. Okay. So, um, where, where's the best place for people to find you uh, online? If you go to rpbook.co.uk, and that will redirect you to my main site, but it's yeah a lot easier to say. Yes. Okay, and you're also on Twitter as well, aren't you? Yes, at rpbook. Okay, uh, I'll put a link to uh, both of those. And um, so you, you've written some books on... Warsaw Pact uh, armoured fighting vehicles, haven't you? There's a couple yes, of them. There's, they're the start of the series, and the next one is um, artillery, which will include um, self-propelled artillery and things. So it does have some vehicles in it. Um, but yeah, the, the hope is to eventually just cover um, all the, certainly the most um, important weapons and equipment of the the Warsaw Pact. Right. Okay. Well, I'll add links to uh, your site on the uh, show notes and people can go and uh, look and see your books. Um, Russell, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. Good. No, well, thank you very much for um, coming on to the the podcast and um, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed our chat with Russell. If you'd like to understand more about the subjects, the books and the films we discussed, there's links in the show notes at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number eight. Don't forget, you can join our discussion group on Facebook. Just search Cold War Conversations. And we're also on Twitter at at Cold War Pod. If you like what you're hearing, please leave reviews on iTunes or with your podcast provider. Thank you very much for listening. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.